1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome to all listeners of the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. I'm very excited because I just spoke with Colin Milburn about his fabulous new book, Mondo Nano, Fun and Games in the World of Digital Matter. This came out with Duke University Press in 2015, and it is a playful, carefully researched brilliant, wonderful book that's so much fun to read and also full of really interesting, um, enlightening, theoretical insights and also um, entrees into the world of gaming, of nanoculture, of um, avatars, of digital sciences and the relationships between digitality, play and the sciences and all kinds of other things. Colin takes us into a world of chapters that explore, that collectively explore the relationships between play, gaming and nanoscience. And although it's really a book focused on nano and nanotech, the insights that um, the reader, that I as a reader got from the book are potentially much more expansive um, than just insights about nanoscience. I mean, this is very much um, a kind of an instructive story about gaming, about play, about collaboration, about virtuality. So whether you are deeply interested in STS, deeply interested in nano, um, deeply interested in gaming, in video games, in graphic novels, in comics, um, or whether you just really like a good story and enjoy reading books that the author clearly enjoyed writing. This is a book for you. I loved it. Um, It's inspiring in all kinds of ways that you'll hear about in the interview to come. And I just want to um, give a kind of a special note to listeners that you'll hear Colin at the beginning talking about the book itself as a game. So you might want to pay special attention to that. And after you listen to the interview and have a chance to go to or go back to the book, do a little bit of exploring um, in the way that he hinted at, um, because I think um, it's a, it's a quite an exciting object in that respect as well. So thank you listeners as ever for your support and for listening. And I hope you have as much fun with the interview and with the book as I did. I'm here today to talk with Colin Milburn about his new book, Mondo Nano, Fun and Games in the World of Digital Matter. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Colin, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today and for writing a fabulously fun and really, really interesting book. Welcome.
0: Oh, thank you, Carla. I'm so happy to be here and to have this opportunity to talk with you. And yeah, thanks so much for thinking about me. Of
1: course. Mm. So, Colin, let's start as is kind of traditional uh, for the channel uh, by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field. Like, how did you come to work on science, technology and literature um, as your general field of study?
0: Well, that intersection... Uh, Those interests actually go way back for me. I, I can pinpoint moments even in my childhood where I was wanting to think about science and literature together. And I was, uh, I've been a lifelong fan of science fiction. So that's been a point of persistent, uh, involvement in these issues for me. And when I was at university student, I was. Uh, majoring in molecular biology and comparative literature at the same time. So I was always trying to explore ways of bringing my interest in literary and cultural studies together with um, the sciences. And I was training for a career in industry. I was sure I wanted to go into molecular biology research, but at some point along the way, I discovered the history of science and STS as research fields, and I suddenly saw that there were opportunities to be involved in the thinking about science and the world of scientific research without having to be a laboratory um, practitioner or theoretician, but that one could actually do social and cultural studies of science. And um, I, along the way, I became aware of the subfield of uh, science and literature that brings together science studies and literary studies. And so I really started to focus intensely on that and Um, With that decision in mind, I actually, I pursued two PhDs simultaneously, one in the history of science and one in literary studies, precisely to bring together these fields. So it it goes way back for me.
1: Wow. Two PhDs simultaneously. Somehow I didn't know that about you. That's wow. Wow. <laughs> okay, so let's move from there to the book itself. The book we're talking about today looks very carefully and also very imaginatively, very playfully, very sparklingly at the relationship between nanotechnology and play. It considers technical research at the nanoscale, as you describe it in the book, as a form of play, and it also looks at many ways in which the research, the research methodology of nanotech and related fields actually blends with practices of gaming, fiction, and fantasy. So how did you come to focus on this particular topic, Colin, to decide that you wanted to write a book-length object about it, and how does this fit with your previous research?
0: Mm. Well, there's two moments where this particular book uh, came together. And one is um, the research that actually was represented in my first book, Nanovision. In the 1990s, I was reading a lot of science fiction that uh, had to do with nanotechnology. And when I was reading those science fiction novels, I wasn't even aware at that point in the early 90s that there was a small yet active field of uh, technical researchers who were trying to research and to create innovations in this field that came to be known and identified as nanotechnology. And around 1998 or 1999 or so, I started to see that actually the the technical researchers and the science fiction writers were in dialogue with each other to some degree. And I was really interested in how the speculations of nanotechnology's future were driving a lot of the research agendas in the sciences. And even to a large degree leading into the U.S. National Nanotechnology Initiative of 2001, the speculative visions and the promissory rhetoric was driving very strongly the possibilities of the technological and scientific achievements. So I really started to get excited about this idea that science fiction-like scenarios, science fiction literature, the imaginary of science fiction was somehow intrinsically involved in the development of of nanotechnology at a technical, social, and political level. So that's when I started uh, working on my the project that became my first book. And in the course of writing that first book, I was talking to a lot of friends. And uh, one of my friends said, boy, if you really are interested in thinking about the sort of cultural and fictional relations of nanoscience, you should really be looking at video games because there is nanotechnology everywhere in video games. And I hadn't really been keeping up with video games for quite a while. I certainly, when I was young in the 80s, had played video games, but hadn't really become addicted to them. And so it dropped uh, playing them for quite a while and somehow had missed out on the game revolution throughout the 90s where games had become increasingly sophisticated Narrative media, Mm -hmm. and so when I started following up then on the friend's suggestion that I should look at games, I had already more or less completed my my first book at this point. But um, I had to agree that indeed there were stories about nanotechnology and game mechanisms in games that resembled or explicitly analogized themselves to nanotechnology. Everywhere in games being produced in North America and Europe and Japan, I was finding hundreds of games, which seemed disproportionate to me in terms of the number of video games that existed, a significant number of them, commercial video games, popular entertainment games that were dealing with nano. So I said, okay, I needed to investigate this and I thought I would just write a single article exploring the connections of game culture and and video uh, game technologies to nanoscience and the molecular sciences in general. And as I got further and further into it, I started to see that the connections went far beyond uh, what would be narratable in a single article. I started seeing that the cultures of nanoscience were increasingly characterizing themselves as fields of playful exuberance, and we're drawing on rhetoric of games, we're using game technologies in laboratories in certain instances, we're thinking about nanoscience as a field that, by virtue of playful imagination, was going to be able to bring in a video game-like future <laughs> into being, I started seeing snippets of this everywhere. And so it became clear that it needed to be told in the, the span of a book. And hence, uh, 10 years later, that book exists.
1: (laughs) Now, one of the things that I really, really love, um, about this book, and this is something I love about books in general that do this is it's obviously the product of somebody who has thought a lot about the book as a form of craft, right? About the structure, about the book as an object, the, architecture of it. And the book, the shape of the book, the form, and also the narrative style really embodies at its very core the spirit of play that you talk about in the book. It's really fabulous. So, oh, thank um, you. It's uh, So it embodies the structure or this uh, spirit of play, but also the importance of digitality, right? The chapters are not counted according to one, two, three, um, decimal. They're counted in binary, 0000, 00001, 0010, et <laughs> (laughs) So can you talk with us a little bit about um, your sort of your play with the structure and the kind of rhetoric of the book? Um, How, um, yeah, what's for you important about that? How did you come to that? And what's important uh, to you for listeners or potential or actual readers to know about how you thought about the structuring and the narrative of the book?
0: Mm -hmm. So in researching play and its, cultural and technical manifestations, I couldn't help but become infected with the appeal of play as a method. I really started to see the value of play for scientists, for futurologists, for science fiction writers, the various creative industries I was looking at. And I saw it deeply, the value of play for non-scientists, um, who were engaging with some of the issues around science and technology that I was looking at through the mode of fun and games. And that to me seemed in need of affirmation, because there's something hugely important about having a good time for making intellectual (laughs) breakthroughs. And I really wanted to say that that was crucial to convey in the form of the book. And also, I was having a wonderful time doing the research. I was able to spend many, many years intensively immersing myself in the culture of video games, playing games for research, um, doing things that many people would do as recreation. And I got to do them as work slash recreation, but it never became pure work. It was always tinged with uh, deep satisfying pleasure. And so hence a need for a type of concept like labor or Ouija or other concepts that other people have tried to think about that index the relationship of the intimate relationship of play and uh, work in some of these areas. So I wanted to convey this and the important um, positive I- impact that having a good time can have on intellectual productivity in the book itself. And so hence, some of these structural features that you're pointing out um, were there consciously as a desire to make academic writing itself um, accessible, fun, and pleasurable for the reader as much as it had been for the writer. And in this regard, I certainly have taken cues from certain influential Uh, scholars in my life, including people like Jacques Derrida, very famous for introducing erudite puns and forms of language play throughout his work. And um, I thought that that could go even further and push it into a type of um, insistent and thoroughgoing playfulness in the writing that never lost track of a kind of intellectual seriousness, but that didn't try to um, reduce the amount of pleasure that one might have in encountering Many um, whimsical ideas and even some less whimsical in the course of the writing. So, at the level of the prose, I tried to achieve that. I don't think I consistently did. There's a, a constant pressure of a certain tradition of intellectual rhetoric and scholarly uh, humanities writing that you know tends to shape the way that we speak and write as as uh, humanities scholars. But I tried to go as far as I uh, felt I could at this time with um, a different form of writing. And the uh, chapter structures, as you point out, also try to engage with the concept of digitization to um, enact at the formal and rhetorical level, some of the concepts that are being discussed in the book. So it's the intersection of play and digitality, which is one of the core uh, themes of my argument in the book. I hope to reproduce that at the level of the book's pages um, and the experience of reading the book itself. And so in that regard, I, I also even tried to incorporate a few um, additional elements as well. So, for example, there actually is a, a playable game, a, a puzzle in the book itself that's kind of <laughs> kind of hidden. So readers will have to look for it and, and search for clues. But there are um, some clues, for example, one might want to keep an eye out for some urls and mm-hmm. um which might point uh to the way to solve the puzzle and there's um, hopefully some interesting rewards for those who are persistent enough to first find the game and then play it through but that was a, an interest in trying to make the reading experience itself into a kind of game and to suggest that gaming is um or can be at the heart of what we do as scholars and that it might even make scholarship better in that regard
1: so for the for the interested listeners slash reader who wants to, um, who's now really curious as I am now, I'm going to go back to the book. In addition to the URLs, do you have a little hint for where um, readers might look for a start?
0: Mm. Well, so... Um, in Without addition- giving, you know, anything yeah.
1: important away. But-
0: so in addition to uh, some URLs hardcore scholars often find a great deal of pleasure in reading through the index of a book. So maybe I will leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Hint,
1: hint, hint, (laughs) listeners. Okay. Um, So let's get into it, right? And we'll get to uh, 0001 just for fun. This chapter explores the intertwined histories of, as we've been talking about already, nano and play. Now, nanotech is serious, but it generates and promotes a spirit of play. And this is what this chapter really kind of um, explores and introduces us to. It looks at some of the ways that gaming and play have generated and stimulated nano research. And one of the wonderful things that you introduce in this chapter um, is a set of toys. Now, these are nano toys, right? Nano soccer. There's a nano toilet. There are nano smiley faces. Um, But one of the things that's really fascinating in this chapter is the discussion of nano cars and nano trucks. So why why was this important? Why is the nano car matter for what you're doing in this chapter? And why is it important for under for or what's important for us to understand about nano cars and nano trucks um, in order to understand the larger work that toys are doing um, in this part of the book?
0: So one of the first big areas of breakthrough in nanotechnology, which led to a kind of crystallization of the potential of nanotechnology to move from a purely speculative or theoretical agenda to an applied science was um, the invention of scanning probe microscopy. And in particular, Don Eigler's work and others work in showing how scanning probe microscopes could be used to maneuver individual atoms. And so a number of experiments were staged in the 1990s to move individual atoms around under, under very controlled conditions into recognizable shapes on surfaces. So often these were um, kind of cartoon-like images. The first one that Don Eigler became famous for was the um, writing of the IBM logo uh, using xenon atoms. And a whole set of other types of um, molecular graffiti, atomic graffiti, we might call it, uh, appeared. And related to that, um, some early experiments in trying to build... molecules with, uh, designed precision that had some resemblance to other macro scale objects. And, uh, um, the appeal of some of these acts of atomic, atomic graffiti or the, um, synthesis of certain molecules that seem to have analogies at the macro scale, uh, was that they suggested a kind of similar functionality. So the idea that we might have similar functions at the molecular scale as we would at the human scale. And of course this isn't true at all. Things are very different at, um, when thinking about quantum phenomena than they are at our, in our own macro scale world. But there was this suggestive analogy that was um, performed by the scientific images that were being produced of these things. But then the criticism of course was always that these molecules or these images, atomic scale images, scanning probe, micrographs were simply, um, human illusions that these things didn't have any kind of macro scale functionality, no, no, cam, no mechanical properties that would be um, similar to what they pretended to be. They were simply any other type of um, molecular surface rearrangement or phenomenon or um, synthetic molecule. Why the nanocar was, different. So Jim Tour's lab at Rice University synthesized um, the first nanocar, which is a a complex molecule that resembles a toy car, and it actually rolls, its wheels rotate. But one of the things that Tour's group had to do was prove that the wheels did rotate, that it wasn't indeed just a molecule that looked like a car, but that it actually behaved something much like a child's um, toy car would, that it would roll on a surface. And so they were able to demonstrate this and drawing on a longer tradition of imagining nanocars of this nature, which I sketch out in the book, they um, were able to overcome the skepticism about the fake resemblance of nanoscale uh, machines or nanoscale devices to um, macroscale ones by showing that they indeed had in fact, created a molecular-sized toy car. It didn't stop, however, being a toy. And I think this was this is a crucial thing, that the way it was used and the type of language around the nanocar exhibited an intense kind of playfulness and also a penchant towards imaginative projection of what would become possible because of the nanocar. There was something like a space of... Um, at the playground, the sandbox, where one can build and play with toys and then imagine possibilities that are animated by the creation of those toys. Very similar, I try to argue and point to specific moments in the the rhetoric used by the researchers, where it seems quite quite like um, associations with childhood play. And there's even moments in the history of nanocar research, and there's been tons of nanocar research done since then uh, that indicates a type of desire to computationally control and pilot the nanocars to drive them around by using computational methods that um, seems evocative of the notion of video game driving experiences to have a computational control of a car. And so it was perhaps no surprise that then there is indeed at least one video game called NanoQuest where you can actually pilot around a toy nanocar um, in the, in video game form. So it, it turns out to have this strange little pathway, a road map that you can draw from Richard Feynman's early visions of being able to synthesize nanocars way before it was technically possible, up to the moment where it did become technically possible, and then into the um, moment where the seeming allure of these molecules as toys became materialized in the form of actual uh, recreational video games. So that's one of the stories that I tell in the book of a similar nature, trying to trace the relations of speculation, technical experimentation, and the role of um, entertainment media, recreational media in tying these things together.
1: So scientists become gamers in a way. And in the next chapter, gamers... Become scientists. Um, so the next chapter takes us really further into this story by looking at the connections between gaming and nano research. And you introduce us to some really fabulous examples, like Folding at Home right? An experiment, as you call it here, in distributed computing that aims to unlock the secrets of protein folding and the riddles of biomolecular self-assembly. So you have gamers who are actually, as you put it here, doing a kind of science in the process of engaging um, games like folding at home and others. And you look in this chapter at lots of computer games that feature and focus on nanotechnologies. Now, there's lots and lots and lots that we could talk about here, but I want to make sure that... that we um, get to in this context, one of the major concepts for me that comes up in this chapter, um, and that really seems to be central to the book, and that's the concept that gives this chapter its name. Digital Matters. You talk about digital matter and the idea of digital matter um, as offering the potential for what you call a kind of scientific revolution here. So what is digital matter and why is it so potentially revolutionary um, in terms of how we think about and practice the sciences?
0: So in the um, popular and technical discourse of nanotechnology, particularly in its early years in the 1980s and 1990s, The concept of digital matter appeared as the far promissory or speculative horizon as what might be achieved. The idea that you could, as technical researchers, assemble, um, material structures in the same way and indeed using the same methods as we might program, uh, digital computers. And so it was the idea of being able to Render matter digital, where individual atoms would have the qualities of computational bits, atom, no atom, um, et cetera, and using algorithmic code scripts as ways of assembling different atoms into molecular structures and macromolecular structures and onto um, large-scale physical objects, et cetera, The notion of being able to build things atom by atom as the main promise of nanotechnology in its early years uh, was shaped by this rhetoric of programmable matter or digital matter. And that concept was attacked and critiqued as uh, for a number of years as not necessarily being physically possible. But what I try to show um, in the book is that this promise of programmable matter or digital matter never went away, even in the years between 2002, 2008 or so, where um, that type of futuristic visioning in nanotechnology was under attack from a number of different sectors, the notion of digital matter continued to persist sometimes in a more, um, tacit or invisible Form, But it was always there. So I point to the continuity of how even in moments where notions of radical future promises of nanotechnology are being derided, spokespeople for nano are often still making or using, um, still making the promise about digital matter or using sets of metaphors and tropes that relate to it. The idea that we as human beings can program matter itself in the same way that we can program digital computers. So I tried to trace then where this metaphor or this concept or promise had come from. I think they're all, it's all of those things, metaphor, concept and promise all at once. Try to trace where it had come from and, how it had infected and influenced the development of nanotechnology and the molecular sciences as fields over the last couple of decades. And what I wanted to argue and I tried to show using um, the historical evidence was that it had a significant amount to do with the interpenetration uh, of the video game industry with the molecular sciences in those years. So I trace a couple of instances of Particular researchers who moved between the video game industry and nanoscience, sets of instrumentation that, um, in nanoscience that drew from software protocols and, um, hardware innovations in computer science. And then I also try to show how modes of practice and even things like, um, competitive play that were characteristic of video game culture were being imported into molecular science research as ways of advancing uh, knowledge in a rapid way. So hence, that's where the kind of citizen science projects represented by these distributed computing experiments like Folding at Home or even in a more radical way, the type of um, massively multiplayer gaming environments of a protein folding game like Foldit and its successors that have enrolled lots and lots and lots of non-scientists into the project of the molecular sciences by virtue of drawing on video game interfaces and game logics, uh, that that has really transformed in a, in a significant and widespread way the means by which this type of research gets done. And it's, it's happening everywhere now. Mm-hmm.
1: They've mentioned, um, thank you, Colin. You've mentioned a concern with the future, and the future has come up um, quite a bit, right? At at this by this point in the book. Now, as we move into the next section of the book, we move into a discussion of what you call a crucible of futurity, right? A, A crucible of making of the future, and that's the figure of the island. Um, Now, this chapter talks a lot about the importance of islands to the cultural imagination of nanotech. And you say, and and I love this line, it's one of many, many favorite lines in this book, the natural history of nano is a story of islands. On the islands, it's playtime. So can you talk um, a little bit about the importance of islands um, for uh, the story that you're telling here?
0: Yeah. So as I've been studying the cultures and histories of nano and related scientific fields over the last couple of decades, I started seeing references to islands and insular spaces everywhere at different levels. So first and foremost, and perhaps most obviously, there is the notion of the nano island as an experimental object, a natural phenomenon or produced phenomenon that can be studied technically. So clusters of atoms that, um, come together on a surface in which there are gaps between them of the, the substance is not continuous. And these structures have taken on the uh, name of islands when they're all together, they look like archipelagos and so forth. And so this, uh, field of research nano island research had become very important in nanoscience and it led to some developments in fabrication technology such as nano island lithography. And so I started becoming very interested in that, particularly the ways in which research on nano islands was often contextualized in discussions about nanotech laboratory spaces that also used vocabularies of insulation and even utopian um, spaces of projecting possible futures. And I, uh, postulated that what we were seeing here is a tradition of imagining scientific laboratories as island utopias that goes back to the scientific revolution and has continued more or less, um, in a, a very consistent way for the last several centuries popping up in scientific writings as well as science fiction works. And that's, um, it's now become part of the of the general cognitive disposition in some areas of nanoscience research so I, in that uh, chapter on islands i wanted to trace the history from francis bacon onwards of where the idea of the scientific laboratory as island either literally on an island or itself as an island in the field of general culture sort of separated from the rest of society how that Uh, was informing the way that nanoscientists were doing the technical work that they were doing, that notion of themselves as being inside of a particular island and working on islands inside that island. But um, I wanted to then suggest why that was then reinforced. And part of it has to do with the idea of digital matter, that one can like programming a virtual world. One can program the real world using techniques of nanotechnology on an atom by atom basis. Again, this kind of futuristic promise that that has been, as I tried to show a characteristic of thinking about scientific islands throughout its history. The idea that one can program material reality that one can program or rebuild life itself is a trope of the tradition of literary and science fictional thinking about scientific islands from Francis Bacon onwards. So that, I think, is it's significant, that this is part of a, a genre, it's part of a conventional way of thinking and speaking, and it, it reappears in the nanotechnology world. But part of the argument I'm trying to make is that what appears to be an island, in other words, the isolated scientific laboratory, is precisely the thing that science and technology studies, history of science, has been trying to um, undermine as a mythology for quite a while, that Laboratories are never isolated, um, either from each other or from general culture. And by being able to trace um, the history of science islands and nano nano island research, um, part of my interest was showing the intense ways in which fictional narratives, um, elements of deeper and ancient mythological uh, thought, video games, comic books, other popular media were constantly appearing inside the research publications on nano islands, etc. Sort of giving the lie to the idea that the laboratory space was an island of any kind, rather fundamentally open to all sorts of other elements of culture. There's
1: even, speaking of um, mythological figures here, there's this really wonderful discussion of Daedalus and the Daedalus figure. I just want to mark that for listeners because there's a labyrinth and there's also, and this is, the book is worth the price, or this makes it kind of worth the price of admission <laughs> for me. There's a nano tour okay? A nano minotaur. And so any listeners out there who are fans of tardigrades um, and sort of little microscopic like animals that it's like, it's a bear, but it's a it's microscopic. What? Um, you will
0: just trust
1: me, buy the book and flip to the picture of the nanotaur and you will understand.
0: <laughs> just
1: understand. Um, that for me was just, oh, you know, the heavens opened up. There's a nanotaur! Um, so So islands are really important, and they continue to be important in the next chapter. And one island in particular um, is uh, particularly interesting in the next chapter. This is Nanotechnology Island. Now, Nanotechnology Island is a central hub of nanoscience in Second Life. Second Life is an example of um, the kind of broader phenomenon of nanotechnologies in massive multiplayer online games that you're looking at in this part of the book. And Second Life becomes really, really important um, later on, as, as we'll see and as we'll talk about To um, lots and lots of what's going on here in the book. Now, you talk here about Second Life as a space of scientific activity. That is super fascinating. Um, It's the beginning of a story that again continues throughout the rest of the book. So, for listeners who are not familiar with this, can you say a little bit about for you um, the importance of well, first of all, what is Second Life? Um, The importance of Second Life for you in terms of the work that the book is doing and the importance of, sec- of second life as a space for scientific activities. Mm-hmm.
0: So second life is a massively multiplayer online world um, that's run by a San Francisco based company called Linden lab. And it's, is a open world. insofar so far as unlike a lot of other massively multiplayer online games, there's no specific narrative framework to Second Light. Well, there is a, a kind of overarching history and uh, now kind of mythology to it, but there's no strict narrative structure. There's no specific um, game-like mechanisms to it. It's it's a virtual world that requires or uh, enables people who participate in it, who are called residents, uh, to build the world um, from the ground up, to make the world what they want it to be. So... Part of the appeal of Second Life has been, since its um, inauguration, has been that it gives users the tools to build materials inside the world to not only make objects, but to create houses, to create cities, to create political organizations and communities, etc. It's an experiment in social... Uh, economic and political organizing as well as the manufacture of virtual goods and materials and it's also been experimenting with um the relationship of virtual economies to real economies because the currency of um of second life the linden dollar can be traded against real world currency such as the u.s dollar and so purchases made in world and purchases made Um, outworld can bleed into each other and so forth. And um, so that's been part of the interest of Second Life. And when it first launched, there was a huge amount of media hype. And many listeners will no doubt remember this as real world companies started to flood into Second Life under the impression that they needed that this was going to be the future of the internet, the future of the world, perhaps, and that they needed to have a footprint in Second Life as it was evolving. That Hype of um, hype and the migration of real world, com- world, world companies into Second Life has diminished entirely. Now it's still the world is still quite active. Um, there's still easily a million active users, and every time I go and visit, even in recent days, there's around thirty-five thousand to forty thousand um, avatars in World at any given moment. So it's still got a very active user base, but it's uh, it's not at the peak of its hype cycle anymore. Uh, but um, to answer your question about the role of science in Second Life, shortly after the world was founded, because it's this open world that requires um, and it, or enables people to do with it what they want, a number of scientists and technology enthusiasts and others interested in um, the future of techno science started to imagine that second life would be a great place for, for doing this type of uh, work or this type of thinking related to science and technology. So a group of islands in second life. And it's perhaps worth saying that um, second life geography is defined by a core mainland, as well as a set of islands that um, are everywhere in the virtual uh, plane space that um, individuals can purchase organizations can purchase or rent islands um, so the geography is very much based upon a kind of insular archipelago imaginary. And so the um, group of islands that was created by science and technology enthusiasts and some scientific organizations such as nature uh, was dubbed the Cilans, So the science islands or Silands as a place where real scientific research and scientists... Uh, could get together and do um, some serious thinking about science and perhaps even do some kind of experiments or share their experimental research with each other. So trying to test the affordances of the virtual world for real science. Now, one of the islands that then appeared in um, in the Scilands was Nanotechnology Island, which was founded by the National Physical Laboratory in uh, the UK. And so I was just Immediately fascinated when I heard the announcement that Nanotechnology Island was going to be one of the Silens, because of course I'd been studying this long history of Nanotechnology Islands and the rhetoric of Nano Islands in Nano and looking back to the history of Science Islands, and here it was replicated in its entirety inside Second Life, uh, seemingly without explicit reference to a, a genealogy, but appearing obviously scripted by previously existing uh, discursive structures. So Nanotechnology Island presented itself as being the hub of nanotechnology research and a kind of emblem of the future of nano that could be um, accessed and studied in the virtual world. So it tried to, in its early years, host a lecture series about the future of nano. It offered a number of interactive ex- exhibits where users could do experiments or watch documentaries or play with um, nanoscale objects or think about relations of different scales of matter and so forth. But what I wanted to show in the that chapter was that even though nanotechnology island or the Cilens in general were presenting themselves as like the core, the hub of nano and other forms of scientific research in Second Life, it was actually disguising the idea that the entirety of uh, Second Life as a world was already exhibiting many of the um, epistemological and semiotic characteristics that were seemingly contained in nanotechnology island itself. Or in other words, that the whole of Second Life was itself a kind of nanotechnology island. So I tried to trace out the history of Second Life to show how deeply its creators were influenced by the discourse of nanotechnology and that their concepts of atomistic construction by which users build objects, houses, cities from the bottom up, atom by atom or prim by prim in the language of uh, Second Life. How this was um, fundamentally showing that Second Life was, from the bottom, a nanotechnology world. and. As a corollary to that, I traced out some of the instances of more explicit kinds of nanotechnology discourse that are animated in Second Life on an everyday basis, where users may or may not be entirely aware of the broader uh, discourse, technical or popular, around nanotechnology, but they are adopting it and using it by virtue of hanging out in Second Life. So they're becoming habituated and uh, attentive to the future promises of nano simply by spending time in Second Life. And I did a sort of ethnography, online ethnography of um, Second Life users to try to assess uh, the degree to which they were internalizing concepts of nano because of their experience in Second Life and some of the events that had been happening there.
1: And this wasn't just observation, this was participant observation,
0: Mm, Because one of
1: the many avatars um, that you describe is an avatar named Colin Dayafter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Colin Day after comes into the story here kind of midway through the book, but here we're gonna jump ahead to the end of end of the book for um a little bit and we'll um jump back um, later on, if we have time, but we need to jump ahead to the end of the book because um, this is where you show us that it's not just um, you know straight up science that's happening and in Second Life. Um, there are also conferences, right, that are mm-hmm. happening in Second Life. Um, this chapter, this is my little avatar at the end of the book. It's amazing. Um, oh, thank it, you. <laughs> it's really. I mean, listeners. Um, Really, really, you need to read this book, but you really need to read this chapter. So this chapter takes us into Second Life, and it takes us into a conference happening in Second Life that involves, among others, Colin Dayafter, um, your avatar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for yes. those who are not aware of that, um, the avatar of sci-fi author, one of my favorites, right, Kim Stanley, Robin- uh, Kim Stanley Robinson.
0: Mm-hmm. yes
1: that of uh, Katie Park historian of science and medicine that of Joe Dumit another historian of science and medicine and others so take us um, for listeners who have not yet had a chance to read the book take us into this conference with Colin day after um, mm-hmm. what happens that is significant for us to understand in order to understand what happens uh what the consequences of this conference for the book
0: okay sure so this um this event that um happened in Second Life was an effort by some, um, residents, um, of Second Life to bring Kim Stanley Robinson into the world. So, uh, Stan Robinson had never visited Second Life before, but obviously because of the intense interest of many Second Life users in, uh, science fiction and science fiction authors, some, uh, People thought it would be a great idea to get Stan into Second Life, show him what it was about, have an opportunity for Second Life residents to talk with him, to talk about his new book at that time, which I think was Galileo's Dream, uh, was the occasion um, of, uh, actually was the occasion for the event in Extropia Corps. It was held in Extropia Corps at Sofrosine's, uh Saturday Salon. And um, so I... Uh, so Stan Robinson lives in Davis, and so I've known him for uh, a number of years. He always is very gracious in participating in UC Davis events, and he comes give he gives guest lectures in my science fiction classes and so forth. So I've um, known him for a while, and he's also friends with Katie Park at um, Harvard University. Katie Park's brother is Paul Park, and he and Stan Robinson are um, colleagues and friends. So um, when we heard about this event happening with Stan, we thought, okay, let's bring the uc davis um sts crew to visit and coordinate with katie who'd been spending a lot of time in second life herself she um was quite a had quite a presence in Second Life um, for a number of years. And uh, so we all converged and listened to Stan's talk, and there was a lively debate uh, among the members of the audience about some of the things that had come up in Stan's, Stan's talk, thinking about the relationships between science and science fiction, the role of virtual worlds in helping us address some of the crucial pressing issues of today. And one element that had been part of the discussion was the role of nanotechnology in affecting um, environmental problems, positive or negatively, or helping various aspects of um, the political economies of technology and so forth. So this was um, a moment where Stan said, Oh, well, Colin should talk about this. And I was just about ready to uh, say some things about the relationship between nanotechnology and science fiction, but the, uh, the audience was Moving the discussion so quickly, I didn't actually have a chance to. But after the event ended, one of the people who'd been there, um, whose avatar was called Perky Pat, uh, came up to me afterwards and wanted to talk. And so I started to get to know her, and um, it led to a series of conversations which I so I documented in the last chapter the the various conversations and dialogues that I had with Perky Pad about the role of virtual worlds in um in thinking about the molecular sciences but in particular it's a meditation on the concept of the avatar as it is used in gamer culture and as it draws upon much longer traditions not only in its Hindu roots, but also through um, various other discourses of technology from the 19th century onwards that consistently um, recollect the Hindu um, and other modes of um, theological and metaphysical thinking into modern science using the avatar as a kind of vehicle or portal, a pivot between the technical and the mythical. So you know, Perky, Pat, and I discussed a number of instances um, from the history of science and the um, ways in which the avatar as a concept has appeared since the 19th century as a thinking of human technological agency in another world or human technological agency at an, another scale and the way in which that concept of avatar has consistently um, invoked or has been enabled by explicitly occult uh, rhetoric and even occult organizations. In my uh, first book, NanoVision, I had spent quite a bit of time trying to look at the um, origin myth of nanotechnology, which is often traced to Richard Feynman's 1950 talk, uh, 1959 talk, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, which he gave it at, uh, at Caltech. And this is often pointed to by practitioners in the field and by politicians and pundits as the, the origin, the beginning that led to the whole nanotechnology race. And as Ed Regis and others um, have shown, that Feynman's Talk, at least one crucial aspect of it, which is his mechanism for how one might begin the project of um, assembling things atom by atom, was not original to him, but that it was um, inspired by conversations that he had been having with his graduate student Al Hibbs at the time, and that were deriving from um, a sh- uh, science fiction novella by Robert Heinlein uh, called Waldo. And so I had written about this as one element in the much larger uh, scope that we can see nanotechnology's uh, relationship to science fiction in my first book. But I've been asked many times to say, well, is, is this, are you just situating then science fiction or Heinlein in particular as now the origin of nanotechnology? Just saying it wasn't Heinlein, it was Heinlein. And the answer to that is definitely no, that it's not Heinlein then becomes the origin, but rather there was a much broader field of science fictional imagination about, uh, nano. And as I show in the, my little avatar chapter, a longer history of various kinds of, um, occult sciences in relationship to the modern sciences that have invoked this idea of atom by atom assembly. And that that was the context actually in which the Heinlein story emerged. So part of the, my little uh, avatar chapter is trying to account for the social environment, in which the Waldo story came into being, which is surprisingly that Waldo story, even though the idea that gets picked up from it is the, by Feynman and others, has been the technical idea of atom by atom assembly. It's in the context of a story about the occult sciences and the discovery that um, magic is real and how to instrumentalize magic is kind of the, the point of that story, which is one of the odd things that it's this kind of fantasy science fiction that becomes the, source for the Feynman, a source for the Feynman talk. And I wanted to account for that. And as I looked further and further into it, I saw actually these connections of uh, occult fantasy fiction and um, speculations on the high-tech future uh, are everywhere in a genealogy that we, or a story we can tell about the history of nano that's motivated around the figure of the avatar.
1: So, it, I mean, it, this is an amazing chapter, right? And it's doing so many different kinds of work at different levels. So Colin Day After and Perkypod are having a series of meetings in um, Second Life. Um, and you take us through those. There's actually a, a picture on the cover of the book, um, at least the edition mm. that I
0: have yes, of yes. one of
1: those meetings. And Colin Day After and Perkypod are, are exploring a cell, right? Mm-hmm. That's quite beautiful. Um, but so, and, and in the course of this, you write, Perkypad, a series of notes on a series of avatar-related incarnations. So we have a series of incarnations, the medium, the demon, the wizard, the destroyer, the puppet master, the storyteller, the sprite, the golem, the nanomorph. It's quite fabulous, and the collected writings on these incarnations are reprinted in the chapter and form a kind of story within the story, right? but there's another level of storytelling happening in this chapter, and that's the story of Perky Pat. Um, and this is one of the really brilliant things, and I don't use that term lightly, The really brilliant things about this chapter is that as we're learning about the history of and with the avatar and its relationship to the occult, and as we're learning about this series of incarnations, we also start, or I certainly started caring about Perky Pat as an avatar. Um, now, Perky Pat, uh, and the story of College. And Day After and Perky Pat has its own um, development here in this chapter. Can you talk a little bit about that and about what happens to and with Perky Pat to the extent that you can
0: comment that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I felt it was important in thinking about avatars and the history of avatars and in particular the conceptual force of avatars in the development of the molecular sciences that it was important to think about my own cognitive processes in arriving at these ideas because of my participation in avatar culture. In other words, in second life and video games uh, more broadly. So I wanted to document the way I had um, been developing my ideas in conversation with other people online through email exchanges that I've been having with various people, Perky Pat in uh, indexical um, in many ways of a, of a number of people. (laughs) And Um, the importance of my own gaming experiences and how I had come to um, do this historical and um, cultural study. So moving back and forth between my, um, in the chapter, between my more discrete narration of historical episodes and my conversations and experiences with Perky Pat in Second Life was a desire or was Motivated by a desire to perform um, avatarness and to suggest the intimate relationship between the virtual and the real, the fictional and the non-fictional, in not only the history of the molecular sciences but in my own practice as a scholar. So that that's why it takes that form, and um, and then the development of the the story of incarnations is paralleled into the um, the narration of my interactions with Perky Pat. Um, it you know was more or less trying to recapture uh, the the timeline of um, how this research had gone, but then also to attend to a very you know personal relationship that hadn't um, that hadn't ended well, and to show how interpersonal relations are formative for our. Intellectual work as scholars and researchers. How emotions like fun and games are also tied up with emotions related to loss and pain, and perhaps um, introspection as to whether one is a good friend or not, and these kind of things. And hoping in some, in a kind of discreet way, to map the complex emotional terrain that underlies the work of research everywhere, whether in the sciences or the humanities. So that's, that's why, um, the chapter has the form that it does and why I thought it was important to, you know, attend to my relationship with Perkypad who I never met, um, as in the flesh, as it were. And, um, whom I, I hope is doing well these days, although I haven't, um, haven't spoken to Perkypad in in quite a while. I'm, I'm afraid to say, (laughs) Uh.
1: So, Colin, there's a lot of other things um, that there are a lot of other things that we could talk about um, in the context of the book. We've we've now skipped over three chapters um, that deal, um, respectively, with the MIT Institute for so- Soldier Nanotechnologies and the ways that media narratives actually inform military research on next generation soldier systems, we've skipped over a discussion of nanopants. Um, which, uh, yes, I just like saying that word, pants.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, Especially in the UK, it means... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>.
1: uh, nanopants. <laughs> so we've skipped over a discussion. There's a wonderful chapter on the digital battlefield. This is sort of relates to um, the soldier nanotechnologies chapter, uh, but the digital battlefield as a kind of everyday play space and the kinds of very complex... Um, Issues of gender and sexuality that uh, are kind of played out on those platforms. Really interesting. One thing, though, that I want to make sure that we get to um, is another chapter that looks at the idea of a nano city. So this Mm -hmm. is a chapter on nanopolitanism, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, You take us into the dream of a nano-city in northern India. Um, You talk about the nano-city in the words of the chapter as a speculative media object and an object of desire. And you sketch here a vision of citizenship and everyday life that you call nanopolitanism. Now, since this idea links up with a number of uh, really important kinds of discourses that people are engaged in right now, um, ideas surrounding globalization, technology, connectivity, and the relationships among them, can you say a little bit about um, nanopolitanism Mm -hmm. for you? What's important for us to understand about this and what role does this play in terms of the work you're doing in the book?
0: Mm -hmm. So the nanopolitanism chapter, takes the form uh, first of a case study, as, as you've mentioned, about the um, now seemingly failed uh, nano-city project that was to uh, be built in Haryana in northern India that was being spearheaded by Sabir Bhatia, um, who's the co-founder of Hotmail and one of the movers and shakers in, in Silicon Valley. Um, it was a utopian speculative vision of building a high-tech uh, city a uh, innovation campus, which is you know an idea that we see everywhere now as a a way of rapidly building up research capacity by building new new cities or new uh research campuses. This one was in particular focused on nano and other new and emerging technologies and marked by the signifier of nano, nano city. And it wasn't to be exclusively focused just on nano, but on on other related uh, innovations that would be enabled by a general nanotechnology imaginary or an imaginary of the future. So I, I tried to, um, trace the history and look at nano city as, um, Indexical of certain trends within the larger discourses around the molecular sciences, and to show how this particular city project not only was imagining a future of nano, but was also imagining a future of globalization and a future of citizenship in that uh, in the networks of globality that were themselves constrained or enabled uh, by the nanotech imaginary. So I wanted to think about how this media what I call a media project, because it's turned out, you know to be more of a speculative diagram with the uh, history of um, failed economic endeavors, or to what degree its failure, I suppose is an open question. But to show how this media project was producing a certain concept of citizenship that was tying, uh, scientific speculation together with economic speculation. So it is fundamentally, the Nano City project was fundamentally speculative, which is perhaps proved no, nowhere more successfully than the fact that it failed, that it did not come into existence or yet. And it, it still, it still might. It remains a kind of utopian, um, promise that's out there and circulates as a, as an idea, as do many of these kinds of, um, high tech city or innovation campus projects that get proposed, um, around the world. Some of them come into fruition. Others do not. Some of them have, uh, been built and have difficulty getting technology companies or university campuses to come into them and, and so forth. This is happening, you know, widely in, uh, in China, um, and India and, and elsewhere. So, I wanted to look at that phenomenon of, of high-tech cities, innovation campuses, and how they're bringing together speculative science, speculative finance, in a way of casting the role of a certain form of cosmopolitan citizenship that would make the conditions of living in the futures of globality um, dependent upon the development of new and emerging technologies, particularly in the molecular sciences. So I I looked at a variety of sites where this was happening, Uh, real-world sites or, you know, quote-unquote real-world sites, as well as how this concept of what i call nanopolitanism as this convergence uh, was appearing in video games that also had narratives about exactly these kind of high-tech utopian cities that would bring together speculative finance and speculative science to produce a new kind of citizen so part of the chapter focuses um on an analysis of the video game bioshock which is um its narrative is very similar to the type of narrative that we saw mobilized in the real-world Nano City project.
1: So, Colin, there is—we're now at the conclusion of our conversation, and there's obviously um, a million billion things that we haven't had a chance to talk about that we could talk about. The book is extraordinarily rich.
0: Oh, thank is you. Is there
1: anything in particular, though, um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Hmm. Well I think um content wise we've ad- addressed many of the things that I'm extremely passionate about in the book maybe one thing that's worth mentioning is related to the introspection about avatarness and the <laughs> the figure of Perky Pad in the in the book in particular which is that um I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about the humanities as a set of scholarly fields and the role of the lone researcher in, in the humanities and the um, structures that require researchers in the humanities still to produce single authored monographs and so forth as the mechanism for intellectual recognition. And my thinking about this has been um, influenced quite a bit because I participate now in collaborative research groups. And I've been doing more and more of this in recent years. I'm running a digital humanities laboratory at UC Davis that brings together colleagues, faculty, grad students, and undergrads in computer science, in English literature, in cultural studies, sociology, anthropology, and everybody collaborates together on developing projects, software development projects, scholarly historical projects, etc., And Each of the projects that emerges is, of course, a discrete project, sometimes very often authored by a single author or a first author in multi-authored publications. But all of the work in those projects in the lab group, um, my mod lab group, are uh, uh, informed by long enduring conversations among various colleagues such that it's hard to say who's where one person's idea Ends and another begins. There's a lot of hybridity of thought that gets performed in these kind of collaborative environments. And similarly, part of a, another collaboration, the Speculative Globalities Group, where a lot of the work from Mondo Nano came from was my long collaboration with uh, these colleagues, all of whom are, are named in the acknowledgments as an effort to try to map these. But I, I guess I just want to point out that m- what I was hoping to convey in the book was not only how much fun research is, but that part of the fun in research can be about thinking together with other people in common. And that play is a mode that we use to engage um, with other people often to have good ideas as a result of having fun together. So, which is to say, Mondo Nano, although it bears my name, everywhere has traces of all the other people that I've had opportunity to play with, um, over the last several years. And I think that's been really crucial to where I am, um, today as, as a scholar and as a human being.
1: So Con, I'm going to ask you an additional question based on that because it's given your commitment to this and given your experience, um, running a lab, this seems to me to be a really important way forward and a really important thing to think about. And that is, the futures of collaborative research. So, given your experience and given your commitment to this, what do you think um, we need to start doing institutionally, as an institutional level, to start making it more possible? for more scholars to be doing this kind of collaborative work, um, as a central part of not only what they're doing, but what, uh, what's being recognized as significant work mm-hmm. in the career, you know, of, of, academic scholars right now.
0: Yeah. There's a, a few things. So in some ways the sciences have been, you know, have <sighs> resolved these issues a long time ago with the protocols for multiple authorship and for allocating credit and responsibility for, um, experimental research that involves multiple people obviously i don't think it's an entirely um, perfect solution many of the authorship protocols in the sciences also are deeply hierarchical and are based on um, certain sets of precedences that could um, still bear some rethinking but the humanities relies traditionally on a again the single author Um, ideal, the lone scholar locked in the monastery, as if all ideas were generated internal to the scholar's mind in relationship to the archive and not in active dialogue with other thinkers. And I think we, to get beyond that and to enable collaborative work in the humanities, it, the institutional um, norms and practices for recognizing work just need to, to change to say that we're not going to devalue collaborative work that announces its influences or its um, collaborations in multi-authored bylines, for example, which often is the case at mm-hmm. many universities where multi-authored work in the humanities is seen as just a nice add-on to one's own single authored work. And in some cases can be even seen as a liability because That's I've right. heard I've heard people say that, oh, if you're writing multi-authored work, I don't know how much of a single-minded individual thinker you are on your own. <laughs> and I think we definitely uh, just need to have a culture shift in that to acknowledge that in fact, we are always multi-authoring things, even when we stamp our own single name on it, it was not the product of our individual thoughts alone. And to be able to acknowledge our debts is crucial ethically, and I think also does make scholarship more rewarding, at least I find for myself, being able to live my collaborations and build on those in a way that, you know, acknowledges and thrives on the people I'm working with has made my own experience as a researcher so much better. So that's the one thing to do, which is to say, fix the cultural expectations and the institutional norms from the department level on up um the other thing to do is um to try to or to acknowledge that collaborations um in the humanities or elsewhere don't just emerge spontaneously or that they don't uh can't be forced but rather they um have to be cultivated and developed over a long period of time. And this is certainly true with, um, interdisciplinary research. The good results from interdisciplinary collaboration often are imagined by institutions as simply being able to, um, emerge er abruptly if the conditions or funding for them are made. But my experience has been that it takes a long time to be able to create a shared, uh, intellectual environment a shared vocabulary with your um, interlocutors and your collaborators just like in the sciences laboratories develop over a long period of time collaborations in the humanities have to develop over a long period of time and needing the institutional support to enable these things um, to develop over time um, is important so things like you know working groups and um spaces to have laboratory-like environments in the humanities, I think, are, are a step in that direction. But also just a kind of cultural acknowledgement that um, these things are uh, take time, and they're better if they're allowed the, the period of gestation that they need.
1: So. Colin, now that the book is out and congratulations on what mm. I hope is obvious is an amazing book and also really, really fun. Well, thank um, you. So mm. what's next for you? What are you currently being inspired by? What are you working on now?
0: Mm. So I've been continuing to find the world of games and interactive media, gamer culture to be fascinating, frightening in some ways, but um, endlessly, uh, endlessly interesting. So. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm working in the Mod Lab, Digital Humanities Lab at UC Davis. And so we've been doing a lot of projects bringing video game technologies and game-like structures to bear on problems uh, at the intersection of humanities, social sciences, and the natural sciences. Um, so, for example, one project we've been developing um, is, a, is a humanities-based uh, video game that's purpose is to teach theatrical literacy and in particular, uh, literacy about Shakespeare's plays in the form of a 3d motion capture video game that uses the, uh, the connect 3d camera. So this game is called play the knave and, uh, we've been developing it for the last couple of years and it's actually just now in its, um, its world debut at the Stratford festival. (laughs) Um, so where it is, uh, in the, It's on display in the lobby so that people who visit the Stratford Festival to see a a Shakespeare play can play the video game before seeing it. We're trying to study whether the experience of playing this game is improving audiences' uh, experiences and understanding and engagement with the live performances of the, the Shakespeare play. So that's one type of project that we're working on, a whole set of other collaborative game and digital humanities projects in the lab. And related to that, I'm also, you know, I am also continuing my single authored work to the degree that is single authored. And I have a, another book project right now that I'm working on, which looks at the role of video games in um, political discourse, and in particular around technology politics and trying to do um, ethnographic studies of game players as they become politicized around particular issues as a, a result of the games that they play and share. Uh, in Discuss in Common. Part of the book is about uh, the rise of hacktivism and the relationship of hacktivism to video game culture and so forth. So that's uh, that's what I'm working on.
1: Fabulous. Well, best of luck with that work, Colin. And thank you so much for taking time away from that work to have a conversation with me today. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on an awesome book.
0: Thank you so much. This has been really lovely and so great talking to you. And uh, yeah, thanks to the audience for listening